Welcome back, everyone, to Out of the Main, our Yacht Rock podcast. Welcome back, co-host and co-conspirator, John. Ah, yes, sir. Great day. Today is a great day. We have uh, uh, two exciting guests, uh, a household name and one that will be a household name by the end of this episode. And the household name, of course, we are so honored to have you join us today, is Dane Donahue. Welcome to the Yacht Rock podcast, Out of the Main. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having us. Yes, very exciting. And uh, the other guest joining us today is Keith Berry. And really, Dane comes to us today by way of Keith Berry in a uh, really brilliant article that he wrote that we stumbled upon. And we the minute we read it, we knew we had to learn more. And uh, Keith was kind enough to join us today and to uh, connect us with Dane. So, Keith, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you very much for having me here. So, Dane, this is uh, it's really an honor for us. Um as Yacht Rock fans um, who are sort of late to the game, uh, uh, Yacht Rock being founded probably 2010-ish, John, is that right? It's uh, a good question. I thought it was 2005, but... 2005, yeah. What, regardless, this album, your record that we're going to talk about today, has achieved legendary status among the Yacht Rock faithful. People spin it all the time. They refer to it. They heap praise on it. And I'm just curious um, if any of that gets back to you in any way do you get a sense for and i know you're probably not as dialed into quote-unquote yacht rock as we are but do you get a sense for this sort of research its popularity some 40 years after the album was recorded you know absolutely a lot a lot of buzz and it's just a wonderful thing but you know again uh i just uh it's difficult for me to wrap my head around i'm just honored to be mentioned in the same sentence as some of those people you know uh, uh some of those great legends henley and uh you know michael mcdonald it's an honor. Well, here's a sentence directly from your liner notes that uh, you have been mentioned in. So here's some names for you. Uh, and these will sound familiar to listeners of the podcast, but Steve Gadd, Ed Green, Jeff D'Angelo, Bob Glob, Scott Edwards, Chuck Rainey, Mike Percaro, Larry Carlton, Jay Graydon, Steve Lukather, High Winding, David Getro, Victor Feldman, Steve Foreman, Ernie Watts, personal favorite, uh, Bill Champlin, Don Headley, Stevie Nicks, J.D. Souther, Timothy B. Schmidt, Tom Kelly. And the list goes on and on. Your name is in that sentence, Dane, so I can see why it's tough to get your head around it. <laughs> well, we, yeah, we used, to, we used to joke I'm the only unknown person on the album. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. While the band played Roger Rock and Roll Very flattering. Those uh, people are so professional and so wonderful to be around. It was just just a joy. Well, we're excited to dig into that record and hopefully hear some of those stories. Um, a lot of which came through in the article that you wrote, Keith, which, again, we owe you personally a debt of gratitude. But I, I think Yacht Rockers and Yacht Rock fans everywhere do as well because you've written this wonderfully researched, beautifully written, just very articulate and really moving story about Dane's life pre-music career, post-music career. It's called The Lost Prince of Yacht Rock. And when we got notice of that, again, it just captivated our attention. So thank you for writing that story, and thank you for bringing Dane onto the program today. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. I'm curious, Keith, as a writer and as a music fan, so this would be like the perfect story for me to write, but I would 
I mean, I, I'm curious, how did you, what was the impetus for you personally to tell this specific story out of any of the other stories you could have told? So, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure like, like other people I'm talking to right now, uh, I could talk for hours about, you know, the minutia of the liner notes of, of an album. I just sort of have that, that kind of, uh, that level of interest. And, um, this particular one though, I, I wasn't, boring my friends and family when I would tell them, oh, you got to check out this, you know, do you know that Bill Champlin had a group called the Champlets and he was all <laughs> of them and just sang falsetto? Nobody cared. But this is a story that when, when I told about, uh, well, there was this guy and he had a great voice. He wrote some great songs and uh, he recorded with you know, Stevie Nicks with Don Henley. Uh, obviously, those are those are household names today that even resonate with, you know, Gen Z. Uh, it's it's it, it's this music um, which goes beyond just an appreciation. It's just omnipresent. And then for someone to have been there and then that kind of human, very sort of American story that not every album is going to be platinum. Um, and what happens uh, to a person afterwards and how uh, life can go through trials and tribulations and, and come out on the other side um, content and, and, and well-adjusted and, and, and happy and able to talk about it. That's, it's a real special story. So this is, this is a story that when I told people's eyes didn't glaze over, my friends kind of were, holy crap, you got to write about that. And, you know, luckily enough, the, the folks at, at Narratively gave me a, gave me a chance to tell it. So um, I'm I'm honored. Uh, you know, Dane really opened up when, when we talked and uh, in ways that, that I really didn't expect. And uh, I'm really grateful for that. So uh, and, and also to to kind of use one one person's life as a uh, and experiences to, to talk about this. This whole era uh, was a, a real gift. So. So yeah. thanks. Yeah. And thank you. And we'll, we'll link to the article, of course, in the show notes. But if you Google the Lost Prince of Yacht Rock by Keith Berry, you'll find it on narratively.com. So, it, it, John, so I, I think the article will have mass appeal for the reasons Keith stated. It's more than just a story about a yacht rock musician. Definitely. But yep. For us, it answers two seminal questions that we've been kicking around on the podcast in my backyard over a beer. <laughs> uh, right. First question being, um, how am I just hearing about this masterpiece in mm-hmm. the year 2019? Because we're huge music fans. We lived, you lived through the era because you're old. I, I sort of lived through the era. <laughs> Quiet. <laughs> um, people know that by now. Yeah. And so that's one question. Like, how am I just hearing about this now? The other question being, look at, listen to the names I just read off. Look at yeah. what they put into this record. How was there never another one? It's brilliant, right? And so whatever happened to Dane Donahue? Those yeah, are the questions we ask. Side two, song three, whatever happened, right? That's right. That was my original. That was kind of my my original pitch. Was what was literally whatever happened to Dane Donahue, and then um, it kind of it got changed from there. No writer gets to write their own headlines. Little never get mad at someone online for having a bad headline because they never get to write it. The mission statement of this podcast has always been about understanding that people when they discover yacht rock, they love it because it's got a nostalgia factor. They recognize a lot of these tunes that they forgot that they knew, and then over time. They know all the artists. They know Michael McDonald, Doobie Brothers. They know Kenny Loggins. They know Christopher Cross. And they want to 
They want more because they're the standard playlists have all the same songs and you get tired of hearing those same songs. So what else is there? So our mission was to dig beyond that surface and try to find these things. And these discussions that we had in the backyard over beers eventually led us to the podcast because I discovered three albums that I sent to Tom and said, this is what I'm talking about finding these gems below the surface. And it was Ned Doheny's uh, Hard Candy. It was Mark Jordan, Blue Desert. And it was this Dane Donahue record. And it just exploded our minds into, wow, there is so much more out there that we didn't even know existed. And if we can find it, and we get so much pleasure out of it, then there's got to be other people looking for the same thing. So, um, again, Dane, thank you for this amazing record. I'm curious, um, Keith's article actually starts before this record. Um, interesting story about how you got discovered um, into show business. And I think you were dabbling in musical theater. Is that right? Yeah, it was. Uh, it's, it's interesting. And you have to forgive me, Keith, because I only filled in part of it, but the... Uh the audition for Jesus Christ Superstar was only a part of it, uh, but my first swing at it was at 18. I actually had a bass player in a band I had called The Buckles that was Tony Bennett's nephew, and uh, Tony's uh, wife actually invited us to New York. Well, we took it seriously and moved in with them to their chagrin, and they, they managed us, or she managed us for a while, and we got a few write-ups in Earl Wilson's column. But after meeting Sid Bernstein, the great Sid Bernstein, uh, who did the Beatles at Chase Stadium, he said, you got to have more material. So I became obsessed with writing songs. And in between all of that stuff with auditioning for Jesus Christ Superstar, I got a lesson in songwriting from Pure Prairie League. Oh, wow. And eventually talked Craig Fuller into producing um, a demo for me. And it was right around the time after the Jesus Christ Superstar audition that I ended up in New York City and walked into the office of Lieber Krebs, who had Aerosmith and a lot of acts, Ted Nugent at that time, and ended up at David's home that night and played a few songs for him. Didn't think anything of it. And the next day, he signed me to the company and to Columbia Records. So they had they had just picked up Jesus Christ Superstar. So it was like a whole... Um, host of things happening at the same time. It's kind of the perfect storm. Mm -hmm. The first time I heard the name Keith Berry, I was locked up and uh, wrongfully, you know, since you asked. <laughs> yuck, yuck. But, uh, you know, w when you're locked up and you hear these type of things, you know you have no control. And uh, at least when you're on the outside, you have the illusion of control. But it wasn't until I got out and I got to talk to Keith and learned how intelligent he really is and how dedicated and what a brilliant writer he is uh, that I, I just, I fell in love with the project and I was willing to open up. And he even shared a lot of uh, his personal things in the story too. And uh, it, was, it was just great. And accolades, all the accolades to Keith. Thank you, Keith. Well, I'm, I'm not going to turn down flattery. So that, <laughs> that's, but, you know, it does, the mutual admiration does come through in the article itself and now, have, you know, getting the pleasure to talk to you, Dane. And so it's interesting that this bond sort of formed over this, you discovering this entire story, which to your point, Keith, is, is remarkable to tell and to, to read. Um, so I, I, I mean, the article concludes with the fact that uh, Dane calls me up on a Friday night and we start talking. So is that stuff still going on? Are you guys somewhat friends? We've been chatting. Yeah, we've been yeah. chatting. <laughs> Interesting. That's so cool. Yeah. 
Well, in the, going back to uh, your early career at Dane, so Keith, your article goes to more detail than I ever knew about a first initial take of the record that didn't actually take and got discarded and the project got scrapped. Do I have that right? At least some of the loose details. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was an album that was, uh, I, I think that the thing, something as I went back into newspaper archives, uh, was just how much of a, uh, a local household name Dane had already, already become in, uh, most of Ohio and in Columbus. And, you know, people were, were going to this dingy days in to go see, and even, you know, the music critics were even saying, you know, you would not expect to find, uh, the next superstar at a days in, 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 you know, in Ohio, but, um, I did. And his name is, is Dane Donahue. And this is going back to, you know, 73, 74, um, and articles talking about, well, you know, he's going to record an album. He's going to record an album. And, uh, th- that album, you know, Dane can talk about it, but he was going to, uh, he was working with, with, uh, Elliot Mazur, who became incredibly famous, who worked with Dylan, with Neil Young, with Janis Joplin, who worked with the band. And it was an entirely, from what I've heard, uh, and I've only heard one song off this album, unfortunately. Uh, it was going to be an, an entirely different type of project. It sounds very early 70s, very kind of country folk. Uh, it's a very different sound. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's different folks. It's, you know, Denny Sywell from, uh, from Wings. Uh, it, it, Dane, you can, you can, you'll remember the people who played on that, but there's a, there is a, yeah. Who else was on that? Well, actually, uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people was, interesting what an eclectic group there was uh i remember joel bernstein uh sang beautiful harmonies he used to go on the road with crosby stills and nash and he he did so many album covers photography Joni mitchell neil young and all that and then we had another guy named clutch that sang background but i got to record a little bit with richard manuel which was a thrill for me and rick danko and then of course mm. the great 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 nicky hopkins who mm. you know was played with the rolling stones and the beatles right and uh, you know but it just wasn't what i was looking for it just didn't happen and i i just didn't think that i thought that was the end of the line to be honest and ended up after that at a cbs convention but my managers took up for me and columbia records stayed beside of me and gave me another shot at it and that's when we brought in boona boylan so was it an entirely different set of songs, too? Or were some of the songs... Uh... Yeah, there was, for the most part. Yeah, there okay. was like a couple that survived. I had a demo that I had recorded uh, with Craig Fuller producing, and he had some people interesting. He actually had uh, a young Ricky Skaggs come over and play on some of the demos. And then some of the guys I'd worked with that ended up on my album from Ohio, Jeff D'Angelo and mm-hmm. Andy Smith, helped me record that. So... Uh, but there was just a few songs. I think that might have been the only one that survived. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do with the rest of my love now that you're gone? Have you heard the
another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I remember an argument that I had uh, with the producer. I said, you know, when we come to this chorus, it, it just has to explode. It has to sound like the Eagles. And I think he said something to the effect to me that, well, you're not the Eagles, you know, and I thought, well, you missed the point. You know, at any rate, it was kind of ironic that at the end of the day, when I did record that song, that was uh, uh, John David Southard and, and uh, Don Henley doing the background. They, they, <laughs> they got the sound I was looking for. Well, yeah, that was my immediate takeaway from a few of these songs was that, uh, that it had very much of an Eagles-esque sound and uh, some of the Jackson Brown storytelling lyric content kind of. So that was definitely my takeaway. So, and then I love the way you put this, Keith. I'm, I'm, I want to turn this though over to Dane. You, you say at uh, a certain point after this album gets to co- discarded and you said the label still wants to take a chance on you, Dane found himself face-to-face with legends and heroes. And those are those names that I mentioned. So what is it like for a kid? How old are you at this time? And what's it like to be now sitting in a studio with all of those names and faces staring at you and saying, let's make a record. It was amazing. You know, I, I don't remember. Keith, how old was I? I, was, I think you were 29. Yeah, 29. Yeah. Not a kid, but. That's still a kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? What transformed all that was uh, uh, there were a few moments that I had that I was going, whoa, what am I doing here? But uh, they were so professional, so unbelievable. Just watching them work, all of them, Stevie, uh, John David. Uh, all those people. It's it just unbelievable how professional they they really were to this day, and that's what gave them the star power. Well, you mentioned being somewhat intimidated. You didn't use that word, but I guess I'll use that word. But there's a great story that I think it was J.D. Souther. Someone was asking for your opinion specifically, and you, the way at least Keith told it was, you felt a little apprehensive, like, who am I to be telling these legends how to record a tune? But J.D. Yeah, the, I'm a local God's guy. A local thing. guy. He said, uh, yeah, yeah. I actually said that I did to John David. He was asking me about it. They were working on uh, Woman. J.D. was getting frustrated over something. I can't remember the details, but he asked me something, and I, I spewed out, well, I'm just a local guy or something like that. And he actually got a little hot under the collar hmm. and said, you know, what are you talking about? He said, I'm from Texas. She's from Phoenix. What are you talking about, local? <laughs> and put me in my place so quickly 
that uh, we got on with it, you know, so. So did J.D. have a larger role than just uh, like backup singer? Was he more of a semi-producer, band conduit kind of thing? He seems like he plays a larger role than just a yeah, side you know, man. I mean, you guys are so perceptive. I mean, <laughs> you weren't there and this happened so long ago. And how you can pick up on some of this stuff. That's Keith's writing. I mean, you're very, very perceptive. J- J.D. was, he was like, at the time, a godsend to me. And, uh, you know, he, he, he worked so hard. He did backgrounds with Stevie. He did backgrounds with uh, uh, Timmy, Timothy B. Schmidt. He did uh, backgrounds with, you know, Henley. I mean, he, he really worked hard, you know. And I, it wasn't until some years later I ran into him in Nashville and thanked him again. Uh, he did a great job. In fact, I credit John David a lot for talking Henley into showing up the day he did. Yeah. That's an interesting story. Tell that story because apparently there was some dispute going on and Don was hesitating to come lay some tracks down. There was, and I told Keith, Keith and I have since laughed about it, and he wrote, he wrote about it so brilliantly that when I was staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel, I was always parking illegally right in front of the hotel. You didn't tell me you were parking illegally. You told me there was a dispute. Yeah. <laughs> Did that come out wrong? Did that come out wrong? Uh, but actually, you know, they kept threatening to tow my car. And the day Henley was to be there at Westlake Audio, they actually towed it. And so in a total panic, when I walked into the studio, I saw Boona Boylan on the phone and, and all the long faces. And he looked at me and said, he's not coming. He's not going he's not, to he's not be here. And so he was talking to him a little bit. And then he said, here, he wants to talk to you. And I talked to him for a little while. And he said, man, I just found out who your managers are. And he said, uh, I can't do this. And so apparently there was a dispute between, you know, Lieber and Krebs and Irving Azoff over mm-hmm. something. Who knows what it was? But he said, uh, I can't do it. And I told him I was trying with all my heart. I said, look, I don't care. I won't even put your name. I'll call you Lord Hen. You know, <laughs> we won't even put your name on the album. I just want to hear your beautiful voice. And then finally, you know, it was a no go. And J.D. grabbed the phone and he said, uh, and Keith, I, I had forgotten about this until now. Again, my apologies for not telling you this at the time, but uh, John David said, man, come on. You, you did add the part about let's not take it out on this kid. You got to get over here. And he said, he added, though, he's got the worst taste in shoes you've ever seen in your life. You have to get over here to see this. Oh. <laughs> he said that. And when he hung up, Henley showed up about 30 minutes later and stayed there till like, it was really late, four in the morning or something. They wow. worked so hard and got it done. Nice. Was that was that the inspiration for for Steely Dan's Bad Sneakers? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, there's a perfect segue because I had a question and it it has a Steely Dan relationship to it. So we've uh, covered a lot of these uh, different albums and things and uh, interviews. We've uh, read the Lukather book, and there seems to be two very different approaches. Lukather and the Page and uh, those guys, they talk about how they wanted to capture stuff in the second or third take at the latest because they felt after that there was diminishing returns. Whereas the Steely Dan approach, as we know legendarily, could uh, you know be zillions of takes with multiple bands and all that stuff. So it sounds like, again, maybe I'm reading between the lines, that Terrence took more that approach, did a lot of takes. Is that the way it went down, as you recall? He did in a lot of different studios and places, and uh, but we knew we had to end up we had to end up back in L.A. You know, we traveled to New York, so on and so forth. Got some great, great basic tracks. 
of your game Hope you find everything's not the same Would it be scary if you find That you're running in circles you left behind Seems your dreams only make you happy When they're far away uh, But for the overdubs and, uh, you know, Carlton, Lukather and all that stuff, um, which was another story in itself, you know. I mean, Luke, there the first time he came in, he was playing uh, an acoustic guitar. And here's this kid that's from one of the hottest bands in L.A. and from the hottest session players in L.A. at the time. And I had him come in and play an acoustic part on the song, Whatever Happened. There's Whatever Happened Again, guys. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. That's It was more that approach. Okay. Interesting. And he, uh, well, I'm sorry to jump in, John, but I wanted to ask you about, you keep referencing Boona Boyland or Terrence Boyland, and he was the producer, but Keith, there was a story that you told where he just disappeared for months on end, and obviously Dane fill in the blanks, but what was that all about? Yeah, so uh, it, it, it seems, you know, I talked to a lot of folks who were who were there and who remembered it, and you got to understand that, that there, there were two Boylan brothers. There was John and Terrence, and um, Terrence was probably the, 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 the less of a household name in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of the brothers, but they went to Bard College. Uh, they were friends with all the people in Steely Dan and Chevy Chase and, and that sort of, you know, that scene of that era. And uh, Buna was recording his 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 own songs, and, and and he had, you know, a couple of a couple of. It's another one of those albums I'm sure that you've uh, you've uncovered, uh, where there's some. A lot of those songs really had an edge to them, you know. They just they didn't have they didn't have like a, a sweetness or a warmth. They were just kind of they were a little they were ice cold, yeah. but they were smooth. Right. <laughs> and um, but he was working on his own album, and what it, what it sounded like is that a lot of people. Uh, stepped in um, to help push this album across the finish line. And when I talked to uh, Jay Winding, who uh, was, you know, was listed as a co-producer and he played piano on the album, but, you know, it really sounded like he was, he was kind of one of the, the, the most important folks here and other people who were at the, at the recording session uh, will echo this, that it kind of took other people to push this album across the finish line. And it just, it felt to me, and, and I don't know if this is correct or not, but it, it felt like Boona was kind of a little distracted and maybe not the sort of temperament of someone who you have to be kind of on top of it in order to produce an album. Mm -hmm. And it just sort of felt to me like, you know, traveling all over the country, spending a ton of money, getting in people here and there, working on my own album, that just maybe the focus wasn't there. Uh, I don't know if that's correct or not, but that's that's the that's the impression that I got. That maybe maybe the the artistry was there, maybe the talent was there, but that other sense just it, it just wasn't. Dane, is that is that my not to speak ill of anyone, but yeah, that's pretty accurate. But you know, I mean, I probably have some culpability here myself because you know he and I had gotten into it a few times uh, over a few things, and uh, maybe he took it a little more personal than he should have. I don't know, and and. Uh, but I wasn't one that wanted this thing to stall. I'd already had this first album sit for months and the second chance. And then uh, I just didn't want to see that happen again. I wouldn't take any chances because Columbia, a big, powerful label, they can pull the plug at any time.
And uh, so we went ahead and pushed to get it done. You know, as I told you, Keith, in the article, and uh, a lot of those people stepped up to do it. And then, of course, we patched things up and Buna came in and mastered the thing and we got it all finished. Uh, and his brother, John, you know, who's a legend, legendary producer in L.A., uh, helped out on that as well. Well, ultimately, uh, my takeaway was that it has a very cohesive sound. So after all of that and the going into different people's hands and different drivers in the, the driver's seat, at the end, it still sounds very cohesive sonically. And so it all works. And it's cohesive d- despite being of different genres. I mean, some of those songs are if, – if I were a, a, a singer in that era – I would, or or an A and R person from that era, I would I would cherry pick songs in there for different genres. You know, there's there's country, there's pop, there's you know, there's there's rock. Tracy is quite funky. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you could you could put those songs with with different artists in a, a little slightly different treatment. And I mean, it's 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 it, 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 but it's still the whole album sounds like a Dane Donahue album. Yeah, which is you know, that could have been part of the problem too, Keith. You know, that could have been <laughs> part of the marketing problem because if you look at the uh, timing on this thing, this album was released right in the peak of disco, mm-hmm. and then just as disco shot to the top, it crashed and burned very quickly. Then shortly after that, they came along with classic radio, and all of a sudden the Eagles are the Eagles again. So I was just in that little time period there, 77 and 78, where all you heard on radio was disco. And I don't think it helped matters that, as Keith just brought up so brilliantly, that, uh, you know, that I had all these different genres. Now, maybe today that would work out, but back then... You know, to have a country-sounding song on one cut and then turn around and have jazz on the second one might have been a marketing problem. And I find it's, uh, you know, by today's perspective of the people that, you know, maybe listen to our show, that, you know, I had a note here that said that any list that offers like a top 10 of a West Coast AOR or a top 10 Yacht Rock albums, any of these lists that are worth their salt would have this album on it and it doesn't even need to be the caveat of saying well this you know a hidden treasure or an album you missed i'm talking this belongs in the top 10 of west coast aor and top 10 of pure yacht rock records and you have that on here you know i had tom you went through the list of people who were on it and i had them sort of subgrouped out i said you know you've got this one set of of names herb peterson uh jd souther don henley stevie nicks tim schmidt um are all west coast aor legends and then you've got this other group of guys you know Graydon, Lukather, Mike Percaro, Larry Carlton, Victor Feldman that are all the names of Yacht Rock and you got both of those and yet you also have both sounds on this record and it fits on both of those lists it's just it's amazing yeah and and jazz too I mean when I was you know when you look at some of those people were kind of on the on the tail end of playing with you know, the likes that, you know, you'll see credits early, early in their career credits with Nancy Wilson, Dizzy Gillespie. And, and you know, there, there's some just the the that sort of uh, that combination of people from the country world, the jazz world, the and, and, and you know, working with real stars who learned alongside them. Uh, you know, Victor Feldman, I mean, look at his, you know, look at his credits and what people bring. It's this really unique blend. Um, you know, you, you've got, you know, you've, you've got just the horn section alone is, 
is just out of this world uh, in terms of who was who was playing on that and who they had played with before. What you said too, Dane. I think it's accurate being a, maybe a victim of timing. I do want to bring people up to speed with what happened to the record after it came out. Cause maybe not everybody knows that, but last week we were doing an uh, episode totally unrelated to this. And we discovered for the first time, I think John, that what a fool believes was one of the only non disco tracks to hit number one. Was it in, in 1978? It was uh, right. 79. 79, 79. Yeah. And we went through the list of just, it was disco, 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 disco. And then what a fool believes managed to crack through that. And we, we mused at the time. I wonder if that's what happened to Dane. Yeah. You know? it, if you were able to, or if you managed to, or just happened to survive that really bright fire that burnt brightly and then phased out really quickly and you get to 1980, then of course you've got another album. And like you said, the Eagles are the Eagles again, or, you know, there's still Mark Jordan, there's still Bill of Bounty, all these others. Um, but what happened to your record? So people, you know, the, the question that Keith answered, whatever happened to, what whatever happened? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think there is a good place to take a break. Well, you do know how to write a cliffhanger. Do you remember back in the 70s and 80s when there used to be multi-part episodes? Yes, it would say like something like to be continued. Yes, true to form. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we ended up talking to Dane and Keith for about an hour. So we thought we'd break the episode up into two parts. And we'll take a break there because we do want to find out whatever happened. The recurring theme. There's a lot that happened. Yeah, there's plenty to tell still. Yeah, so I think my favorite part of uh, the the first segment was when Dane said uh, he used to joke that he was the only unknown on the entire record. That was the best, right? That that was mine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. And, of course, you know, just hearing him refer to uh, these guys, you know, that to us are legends, and he's just, you know, hey, Boona this, and uh, John David that, and, you know, Timmy B. It's cool. I don't even know how to pronounce half of these guys' names, let alone, you know, refer to them as buddies. So, No, apparently we got uh, Jay Winding wrong. We had High Winding, and that's what I thought it was, but. Well, now I'm going to tell everyone who's willing to listen, and even those who aren't, that I am now only two degrees separated from Steve Lukather. That's right. We're hoping for one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, we're getting, hey, yesterday it was six. So, anywho. Well, cool. Well, we'll uh, like I said, we'll take a break there. We will pick up with the conversation and find out whatever happened in part two next week, which brings us this week to a lightning round. Yes. An all Dane Donahue inspired lightning round, at least for me. Not for me. I had I've had some that I've just been holding for so long, and it seems like I just need to to get these out. Get there, these so. out. Okay, cool. A well, yeah. little bit for everyone. A little flavor for everyone this week. Right. Right. All right. Well, I am going to pick up where the conversation left off then, and I'm going to go first. Okay. <laughs> Which you hmm. say I say a lot, <laughs> but um, I did try to keep it uh, theme appropriate. I wanted to. Because you just a few weeks prior to us interviewing Dane, you tipped me off to that Terrence Boylan record, which I just fell in love with. And then, ironically, it became relevant. It did. Like, super relevant. Very. And, um, you know, he told the story about how Terrence would leave for months on end, and they got into some quibbles and squabbles. And 
that same year, Terrence Boylan's working on his own record, and you can't help but hear the similarities sonically between the two. Absolutely, yeah. And I even wonder how much of the style of Dane's writing Terrence was inspired by. I have no idea who wrote which songs when, you know, but there's even some stylistic similarities in that. I think so. This is why I'm getting to Does It Float Your Boat, because the Terrence Boylan record is more, I think you would say, um, more West Coast AOR than Yacht Rock. Is that right? Yeah, I think people slip some into the yacht, but I think those are a stretch just because, but but people want them because it's so good and everything about it, but it doesn't have any of that bounce. Let's, you know, be honest there. To me, it feels more like West Coast AOR, but I have it in my list, so well, you know, who might have Yeah, I've been thinking you could make the same arguments for a lot of Dane stuff, too, but there's no Yacht Rock purist that's going to take any of that record out of the boat, I don't think. No, I don't. Um, you No. I'll just leave it at that. Well, let's <laughs> let me let me give you the song and tell me does this float your boat? Not do you like it, not is it West Coast, but does it float your boat from a yachty perspective by Terrence Boylan? Don't hang up those dancing shoes. I was hoping you were going to pick that one uh, when you started talking about Terrence. Isn't that the one that didn't uh, Dane give us a little snippet of that? Um, yeah. First time he picked up his acoustic guitar. Yeah. Um, that That's a definite yes for me. I, I can't go through the whole make the case of it, but that is a hard, unquibbled yes. And to me, it's like there's a very fine line, finer than it probably should be between West Coast AOR and Yacht. So. You know, I make the either the mistake or whatever you want to call it of lumping the two together often. So yeah, that one's on my boat for sure. It floats my boat. The entire record, though, I would not say so. So I'm not that off. Right. I, I love. I think the title in and of itself has such a interesting, I guess, visual that that helps it on the boat for me for some odd reason. I don't know why. Yeah. All right. Well, what do you got for me? Does it float your boat? I have one that's often argued about, um, and I'm not asking you to make the case or, uh, but. I think this was one that we both discovered early on in our discovery, and it was being played probably when you were streaming a Pandora uh, Yacht Rock stream, and um, we were just like, oh, who's this? You know, picking up the phone to check and see who it is, because <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't know all these tunes at the time. But I'm wondering where you are now. It does fall within the years of Yacht Rock, but it's one of those acoustic guitar things. Mm. Is it the Eagles? So, no, it is not. <laughs> I'm not going to make it that easy on you. Yeah, okay. Dave Mason, we just disagree. I don't even have to think about it. Yes. I don't care who knows it and who hears it. That song is so vibey and yachty to me. I, I can't even, being schooled on what the technical definitions are supposed to be, you can't talk me out of it. So, sorry, yes, it floats my boat. You? 
Yeah, it does.、Uh, I can't exactly say why. I admit it's more ballady than it should be and it's more acoustic than it should be, but there's something unique about it that still works in a yacht list for me. I can't define what it is. So we're going to continue to have that one be controversial, I guess. Yeah, and it's the, the main thing is those harmonies to me just sound so yacht rock era appropriate. That's got to be it. And that's why we talked about that with Dance With Me. And to me, they're kind of similar. Yeah, yep. Oh, I, thank you for reminding me about that song, by the way. I'm going to go jam it when we're done. Yeah. All right.、Um, you know, funny, that should be the Yacht Rock Facebook group theme song. We just disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Except it's probably not yachty enough for that. <laughs> That's true. All the more reason because it's on the yeah, fence. True. Yeah, true. All right. Well, I'll suggest that to the powers that be and、um, okay. see what happens. That's going to go well. Yeah. I, I predict good things are in my future. Okay. Well, buried treasure time then, huh? Yes, sir. Okay, then this is if you're a,、um, an avid yacht rock listener, this is not buried deep. This isn't. This is more for the people that are in the early discovery stage of wanting to get beyond the hits that are the 200 songs that, or less <laughs> that serious radio plays.、Um, but I find this song has some interesting qualities about it because it was composed by Bill LeBounty and a guy named Stephen Geyer, G E Y E R. He was a lyricist that、uh, worked with Mike Post a lot and wrote the lyrics for the Greatest American Hero theme. So I find that interesting、mm. and novel. Yeah. But this is、uh, Robbie Dupree, Hot Rod Hearts. Hot Rod Hearts up on the boulevard tonight. Here come the hungry sharks up from the bottom for another bite. Love it. That, so, not super deep. No. But, no. But I would say if you went back two years in time, for me personally, that would have been a, a deep cut. Same.、Um, so, it's all the more reason to include it. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's, what that, that's for those people that are earlier in their discovery phase. Right. Right. Very, it's a gem, a precious gem, buried treasure. Yes. Yes. For my buried treasure, I'm just going to stick with the Dane Donahue record because the entire thing was buried far too long for me. It deserves to be unburied for everyone. And to the extent that there are listeners who are still, like you said, early on in their discovery journey, just pick up the record.、Um, but I will submit to you for the purpose of this lightning round Can't Be Seen. Can't be seen. Smoking machine. Yeah, that's one that's on the,、um, the rating list. I know there's three that are on the list, and that's one of the three. And、uh, well, the band played raunchy rock and roll. I mean,、hey. there's a line that just it, it says yacht to me, man, but、uh, it's a buried treasure. It's a great, great track. It really is. And it's a, kind of a rocker, too. So there's a lot of different sonic, a lot of different sounds like we touched upon when we, and I think even Keith brought it up, you know? Yeah.、Um, And that shows the rocking side of Dane, which is cool. And it's one of those songs that goes up and down a、mm-hmm. lot, you know? And it's not that, it's one of those that I mentioned. It's not verse, chorus, verse, chorus. It's got a different shape to it. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, I am going to, again, I'm going to stick with the theme and we're going to go to Off the Map. And in the interview, we touched upon a song that is probably not Yacht. Because it came from Dane's first recording of his album, which I think was、oh, more,、yeah. I think they said country influenced. I'm guessing it was kind of more like the Eagles and, 
you know, that was the sound he was said he was even going for. Right. That Elliot Mazur production stuff. Correct. And one single has survived that session. To my knowledge, it's the only one. It's available on YouTube. And it's called I'm Easy. Because I'm easy. Yes, I'm easy. Say you want me and I'll come running without taking time to think. You know I'm easy. Take my hand and pull me down I won't put up a fight No, I'm easy yeah, There's actually a 45 pressed of that, apparently Yeah Because that's the image on YouTube Right, exactly That does have a cool Poco sort of Eagles vibe to it, doesn't it? Absolutely, I could take that all day it's Some of that sound, I think, did survive in, like we said, the different sounds of this Dane Donahue record You mm-hmm. can hear permeations of that of course you got jd and those types of people producing and contributing but so yeah that was something that kind of struck me is that certain people not not in a a a negative way but certain people are cast off as saying well they're not yacht personnel they're aor personnel and you know jd is one of them obviously henley stevie nicks are all considered well they're not yachty people but here they are making this record that is decidedly Yachty and uh, granted they weren't the ones producing it but it's a they have a lot particularly JD has a lot of imprint on that record and JD is more associated with Eagles Jackson Brown that vein of stuff that is generally not considered yacht yes and not to beat a dead horse though it does show that why there is that fine line where they, they kind of butt up against each other and I think I should be forgiven for allowing myself to cross it from time to time. I forgive you. Yes, that's nice. I can sleep well tonight. All right. <laughs> um, well. Well, this one uh, my, my, uh, off the map might put you to sleep then. Okay, good. Um, how do I want to describe this one? Uh, it did go to number three on the adult contemporary chart, so that might help you sleep. I'm already sorry. Um, but I'm sticking with the guys that are the mellow West Coast acoustic-y kind of thing. And I know this is not Yacht. And I know that is, this comes from, I believe, 1990. So it's outside. But I feel that there's a lot about this tune that fits well with that stuff. And um, tell me what you think uh, in terms of off the map. This is Dan Fogelberg, Rhythm of the Rain. Listen to the rhythm of the fall. I do love that song. I do think it fits into my little area where I just described this little crossover. It's soft, but yes, Fogelberg's another one that's I feel like it's got one foot in the boat and one on the dock. And tell me if this helps. The opening lyric of the tune: "Listen to the rhythm of the falling rain, telling me what a fool I've been." Done. Ding ding. <laughs> <laughs> it's Yachty. Um, yes. <laughs> That wasn't really uh, the question. But yes. Yeah. Is yeah. it off the map? Yes, it is off the it map. It is. But it's a good yes. All right. Well, that was well done. Um, put a pin in that for next week's episode uh, when we get to the lightning round and we talk okay. about off the map. That's another cliffhanger. Boy, our listenership next week is going to be through the roof. Mm-hmm. All these cliffhangers. You got any other cliffhangers? Ahoy. Ahoy. 